0: Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Phoebe Holdens and Chimera, a GP, and I work with the Black Dog Institute in the eMental Health in Practice project, which develops and delivers educational material for health professionals. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 48, Promoting Healing and Recovery After Sexual Violence. We had three guests on the webinar, Associate Professor Laura Tazio from the University of Melbourne is a researcher and sociologist with expertise in domestic violence. Dr. Carol O'Dwyer is a clinical psychologist working in the area and a postdoctoral fellow with Phoenix Australia. We also had with us a very special guest, Zafia is a counsellor, research advisor and an advocate with lived experience of sexual violence. Dr Jan Orman, a GP with a special interest in mental health, was facilitating this webinar. In this webinar, the focus was on adult sexual violence and the longer-term mental health consequences. The panelists spoke about the relationship between adult sexual violence and mental health difficulties, addressing adult sexual violence in clinical practice, and some online strategies and tools that can help us as we provide care for those who've experienced sexual violence. Laura started the conversation by talking to us about what we mean when we say sexual violence. I wanted to begin with this
1: little sort of overview of what we actually mean when we're talking about sexual violence because I think certainly in the literature there are a whole lot of different terms that get used and different definitions that get used and they actually... Um, have an impact on, you know, how it's measured and how we understand the prevalence. So when I talk about sexual violence, I like to use a very broad definition that includes not just rape and sexual assault but also a whole lot of other behaviours, some of which may not involve any physical contact whatsoever. Um, for example, coercion and blackmail to obtain sex, um, you know, sending somebody uh, sending somebody's naked images to someone else without their consent. Um, you know non-consensual participation in pornography those sorts of things that are uh, less spoken about I think but um, equally harmful. I'm interested in in unwanted touching and groping
2: appearing there on the slide Laura they're the sorts of things that are really normalized in our community aren't they?
1: Absolutely um, I think you know there's a certain um expectation almost that these things happen and you just as a woman particularly you know you deal with it Um, but in fact uh, those sorts of behaviours can be very um, confronting and harmful and I think definitely should be included in our definition of sexual violence given that they are um, behaviours that make people feel very unsafe and and often frightened um, and, and they have that sort of sexual undertone as practitioners, they're probably
2: the sorts of things we should be taking more seriously than we are. Tell us a little bit about the perpetrators of sexual violence.
1: Yeah, so I think more than any other type of violence, sexual violence is one where the perpetrators are almost overwhelmingly men, um, and that's the case no matter who the victims are. Um, And women are predominantly the victims of sexual violence, but also, you know, to acknowledge that trans and, and Gender diverse people also experience very high rates of sexual violence. We don't have as good data on those populations um, yet. So the focus tonight is predominantly going to be on women because that's where the most data and research is. Um, I think one key thing to mention is that. you know, the media, as you can see from, from the headlines here, we've got the headline from the Eurydice Dixon case that happened here in Victoria and, and Jill Ma, that was another high-profile sexual assault case um, by strangers. This, that is the sort of incident that the media takes up and talks about a lot and that's what we hear about. But, in fact, it's far more common for women to be sexually assaulted by someone they know and often that can be their
0: intimate partner as well. Laura shared with us some statistics about the prevalence of adult sexual violence in the community, with the caveat that sexual violence is very much underreported.
1: Even these prevalence statistics that I'm going to talk about are likely to be hugely underrepresentative of the true scope of the problem. Um, we know that this is a very difficult issue for people to talk about and uh, you know, people just don't disclose Um so, what we the current data we have available now for Australia um, suggests that around one in six women and one in 25 men might have experienced sexual assault uh, since the age of 15. And the reason um, I'm highlighting that it's sexual assault is because, as I flagged earlier, how we define this is um, makes it has a huge bearing on the prevalence that we get in the data. So the data from the Personal Safety Survey, which is from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, it's a national representative survey that happens every few years. They look at sexual assault. So as we would typically understand it, you know, like a contact um, sort of forced behaviour, that's what they're measuring. So they're not including a lot of those other um, different behaviours that we talked about earlier, those coercive things, and they're not necessarily included in that statistic.
0: Laura then discussed the PROSPER study, which looked at the prevalence of adult sexual violence in Australian GP settings.
1: So the PROSPER study was a project I did a couple of years ago to address um, the lack of data that we had in clinical settings. So we've got (coughs) community samples like the Australian Bureau of Statistics work, but nothing really to, to inform, I guess, clinical practice. So we did this study in general practices. There were nine practices who participated across Victoria. And we basically sat in the waiting rooms and uh, approached um, all women who met our inclusion criteria. So that was, you know, adult women who were not closely accompanied by somebody else. Um, And we asked them if they would mind filling in a survey on an iPad while they were waiting to see the doctor. And, you know, a lot of women agreed to participate in it and uh, we didn't uh, ask them if they had or hadn't had any experiences because we were we were looking at prevalence. So we um, just approached all women that were eligible. And we found that um, in the two waves of the study, we had around 500 women overall across the two waves, but the prevalence was between 41 and 45% of those women had had some kind of sexual violence experience in their adult lives. So, you know, really quite... Um, quite
2: high Mm. so that's what we might be expected to be seeing and Mm -hmm. if we're working in different kinds of clinical settings we're going to be seeing even higher prevalence figures
1: aren't we that's right carol did you want to talk about um some of these prevalence
3: rates particularly the inpatient ones because that's your area Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, Yeah, I guess it's important to remember that these prevalence rates increase again when we think about women with serious mental illness. Um, Research shows that about one in three women who present to inpatient or outpatient mental health services um, have experienced sexual violence, and then we know that through you know the research that I did in my PhD and previous literature that there is such a high prevalence of almost half the women um, who have been admitted to inpatient units report experiencing sexual assault or sexual harassment while in the inpatient unit, uh, usually perpetrated by other in. Um, male inpatients, and you know this of course then would it be really tra- re-traumatizing really destabilizing so it's something that's really important to remember I think if you see someone who has um, experience of being admitted into an inpatient unit and we know that that can obviously be really re-traumatizing in itself because it's often out of their control when they're admitted um, and then the, their time in there um, so it can be really complex and really compounding I think it's really um, a complex yeah. picture to think of
2: pretty horrifying
3: really when you think about it
2: yeah now all these women who've experienced sexual violence what are the impacts on their health carol can you tell us something about that
3: yeah, um, I think it's just really um, there's just really vast to think about the the many different health impacts it can have from you know mood disorders and PTSD obviously, but also eating disorders is really common uh, for women who've experienced sexual violence, um, and you know a really common presentation that we might see in our practice is people presenting with sleep difficulties or disturbed sleep or difficulty falling asleep, um, often something that people. Um, come to therapy for and might not relate it to their history of sexual violence or want to talk about it you know at that time but it's just something I think to be aware of of course there's also kind of distress tolerance or dysregulation that we see and ways of trying to cope with that like alcohol and substance abuse Um, and of course then we you know Thinking about STIs, it might see in your general practice um, or unwanted pregnancies and physical injuries as well that people might present with. So there's really is an array of presentations that, you know, is important to look out for. And then at the more um, harmful end, I guess thinking about people who might present with suicidal ideation or self-harm or not feeling safe. And the interesting thing about
2: most of these is that they're chronic, long-term consequences, aren't they? They're not something that they get for a little while after the event and it goes away. So it, it may be much more common in our patient groups than we think. What about intimate partner violence? I know that's that's slightly different.
1: Yeah. Um, I wanted to particularly talk about intimate partner sexual violence because I feel like that is an element of sexual violence or a type of sexual violence that doesn't get the attention that it should. Um, So uh, in some of the PROSPER work, for example, we found that um, we looked at the different types of perpetrators and how that impacted on women's mental health. And we found that when the perpetrator was the intimate partner, um, the PTSD was higher than for women who'd been assaulted by a stranger and the depression was worse than if they'd been assaulted by another known person. And there's other literature out there as well that kind of supports that. Um, And in uh, some of my research, I've spent a lot of time talking to victim survivors about their experiences of intimate partner sexual violence and why it is Uh, particularly traumatic and um the the sort of reasons the the mechanisms through how it damages mental health and what they told me was that a really key thing about it was the betrayal of trust um so it's you know very different there on that element to an assault by a stranger it's and it's also remembering that it's probably not a once-off thing um because they're often living with the perpetrator and and being subjected to repeat assaults. Um, So that betrayal of trust, the sexual nature of the violence, um, because of course we know that when there's sexual violence, there's often other violence happening in the relationship as well, physical or psychological, but there was something about the sexual nature that was particularly harmful and difficult for them. Uh, They found it very dehumanizing and it was easier for those women to blame themselves for what had happened. Because it wasn't, I mean, all sexual violence survivors often do this, but it wasn't just like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and this happened. It was easier for them to say, well, it's something about me as to why this has happened Um, because, you know, I was just in my home with my partner and this happened. Um, So that was something that could really cause long-lasting impacts and challenges with getting into new relationships and with their sexuality further down the line.
4: Yeah, well, I, I I agree with that from my own experience, of um, with my husband, you know, which was repeated um, sexual violence as well as just general physical violence. Um, you know, my sense of self um, diminished. I became very anxious. I actually um, started using alcohol in order to cope. Uh, so. Yeah, and this whole sense of I'm to blame, I'm to blame, there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with my sexuality. Um, He would keep on reminding me that that was the case. Mm. Uh, And it was, yes, it was incredibly dehumanising because, you know, I feel I'm the victim here and I'm being violated. You were in that relationship for quite a long time, weren't you, Sophia? Yes, I was married for 20 years in that relationship, um, and I stayed with it. Um, and it's, it's in, when I look back now, I, I think, how on earth did I do that? Why did I stay in there, you know? Mm. But, um, you know, I, I was brought up as a Catholic, and, you know, you have a cross to bear in your life, and this was my cross, mm. and there's no such thing as divorce, well, in those days anyway. This was in the 70s and the 80s. Um, um And so I stayed with it. I stayed with it, and also, I must admit that I did care for him, which was rather confusing mm. for me. Mm.
2: I think I remember you saying that your husband had an alcohol problem, is that right?
4: well yes i mean he was he was also an anxious person i mean he was an academic at university mind you um, and he would um you know he'd be he was excellent at his work but he'd come um, home and take out his frustrations on me um, and um, especially if he was drinking which he would do regularly and i knew that if he was going to be drinking that he'd be quite aggressive sexually in the evening so i would try and remove myself from the house and I would actually hide in the garden at night until he went to sleep and then I'd come back. So, yeah, that was my way of trying to protect myself. I find that story horrifying.
2: (laughs) I I I know. I know. I'm really sorry you had to go through that
0: experience. Then the panel discussed the case study, which is about a university student. Let's talk about Jess. Jess is a
2: 28-year-old who's at university doing a master's degree and presents to her GP with sleep disturbance and headaches. Not an uncommon scenario, really. She's got anxiety for no obvious cause that's beginning to interfere with her studies. And during the course of the conversation, the doctor, noticing she's 28 and sexually active, mentions the need for a cervical screening test and is... Surprised by her reaction to that suggestion, her apparent um, declining of the test, but certain degree of of shock that she might have to to consider such a thing. Carol, tell us how how Jess exemplifies a patient with with um, a history of of sexual violence.
3: Yeah, and I think this is a really good case study to highlight that often it's not disclosed, or the patient doesn't even think it's something to talk about. It's often something that they that's in the past that they've buried. That it's you know it's it's done and dusted, and not related to their current presentation or current fears or feeling of unsafety in the, in their world. Um, so I think it is really important to think of those subtle red flags. I guess that we you know uh, that we often see around the sleep disturbance or anxiety and anxiety that you know you might interpret that as maybe it's related to her study and you could be taken down a path that might be incorrect and think about, well, let's help you strategies to study. Uh, Whereas you're really not listening to the patient and exploring and doing all that kind of supportive work in the early days, which is really key.
2: So what are the common presentations that might be red flags for for a history of, of sexual violence? I can see a list in front of me that's very extensive. For you, Carol, what are the commonest of those presentations?
3: Yeah, look, I think it is. It's really common to have, as you know, such a, a diverse array of presentations that we all see. And so, really thinking about um, these clients, if uh, some of these presentations appear so often for me, it's um, anger, whether it's more recent. Um, experience of sexual violence a recent client of mine disclosed just this week and she was really angry she was really in that rage state and I was just there with her and angry with her and angry for her and you know it's really important to just be present with the person and support them and go along that journey with them Um, and again as we've touched on already that self-blame is so common and so just really reinforcing that it's not their fault it's never the, the victim's fault no matter what the circumstances is but you know it, it is it's such a you know a broad experience between you know from flashbacks to coping strategies of substance use of self-harm or feeling really fatigued and exhausted or gastrointestinal p- problems again something I'm sure a lot of GPs see and I see myself in clinical practice. And, you know, again, it can go down that testing route and maybe people need that, but also linking that back to what well, might be part of that stress and distress that you're experiencing because of this sexual violence.
2: Sophia, did you see your GP? Does this resonate for you, these, these presentations to general practitioners for various physical and mental health things? Is that
4: what happened to you? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, look, it was... It was something I would never disclose. I never would disclose because of my own shame, my sense of shame and guilt and feeling responsible for all of this. Um, It wasn't until um, later on when I came to... the decision that I must eventually leave after about 19 years, that I decided to, to visit a GP just to put on record, you know, just to show that I had physical bruises, um, just to have that on record just in case I needed that. And um, uh, and nothing seemed to have come of that. I mean, I don't – I think that she was quite um, – tried to be quite uh, supportive of me, but there was there was no avenues or nowhere where I could go with it all. So it just mm-hmm. left.
2: Did that GP ask you about sexual violence at that no. presentation? No. No, no, no. Okay. Yes, that's interesting, isn't
4: it? Yeah, it would have been interesting if she did because I, I wondered how I would respond, you know.
0: mm
2: I, I suspect there may, be a, there may have been a chance that you wouldn't
0: have told her, is that right? Probably not, <laughs> no. Along with looking at these red flag presentations, we also need to take into account the specific groups that are considered high risk for sexual violence. This includes sex workers, women with disabilities, women on insecure visas, those experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, and women with serious mental health issues. It also includes people who've experienced child sexual abuse, bisexual women and gay or bisexual men. And although there's not a lot of research on sexual violence in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they would be considered at higher risk given the statistics on family violence.
1: The insecure visas mentioned makes me think about coercion. Exactly, um, and we know from the family violence research that they that women who come on sort of partner visas and so forth, and they're being sponsored by the partner, can be very vulnerable to um, mm. you know abuse of that power dynamic by the perpetrator. And you know, uh, if you don't have sex with me, and I send you home to wherever, um, mm. I'm going to cancel your visa. All those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, we know that those things definitely happen in the family violence context. So certainly. Uh, sexual violence in the in the context of an intimate relationship is the same thing in terms of the risk. Mm. So there
2: are uh, coercive elements that we're not necessarily going to see, and that perhaps people won't report to us uh, this the violence is not physical violence as much as emotional violence that's being mm. perpetrated.
0: We then revisited the case study to discuss providing health care to survivors of sexual violence.
2: So, Jess's warning signs, just to sum it up, were those unexplained vague physical and mental health symptoms, the sleep issues, the impact on her studies of the way she was feeling at the moment, and that little clue about her concerns about having a cervical screening test. Do women like just want to talk to their health care provider about sexual violence, do you think?
4: Zofia didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I think, you know, um, if I had a really good relationship with my GP, if I feel I can trust trusted her and I feel that she was really interested in me, then, you know, there could have been um, an opportunity there, but um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Look, not everybody does. Um, there are going to be some people for whom, you know, the health practitioner is not the right person. But I think uh, overall, there's certainly mounting evidence that uh, they can be. They can be a really appropriate and and good person to disclose to if they've got the skills to be able to do that in a non-judgmental and supportive way um, to support the patient. So you know, the data um, from the Uh, personal safety survey suggests that um, one in 12 women from that survey first disclosed an incident of sexual violence to a general practitioner or a health uh, professional and of all the women who sought advice and support for sexual violence it was about 500,000 of them a third of those chose the health practitioner as the person they wanted to get advice and support from Mm. so um, Yeah, international evidence kind of is is along those lines as well. We've got some wildly different disclosure rates depending on the countries and settings, but between 6% and 27% across the studies. um, We do know that women are less likely to disclose when the perpetrator is an intimate partner for all those reasons we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely, you know, the literature in sexual violence and violence more generally suggests that healthcare settings are... um, a good place to disclose because of all those underlying um, and connected health issues. So, women are seeing health practitioners more because they're experiencing more health issues. And if uh, they feel confident that they're going to get uh, a non judgmental and supportive response, I think many women do or would feel comfortable to talk to a health practitioner. Why don't they? Yeah, well, that's the thing. In the literature, we we do see um, some pretty consistent barriers that come up that stop women from disclosing, and those include thinking that it's not relevant, like what Carol was saying earlier. You know, they might come for something totally unrelated or they don't think it's related, and so they don't think to talk about this. Um, they feel embarrassed or ashamed that this has happened to them. You know, They don't want to disclose that they're now a you know, quote-unquote sexual violence victim. Uh, they may not trust that particular healthcare provider and feel like that's not the right person for them to disclose to. But I think a really key one here is that the healthcare practitioner didn't ask. Um, sometimes I think there's a misconception that health practitioners have of thinking, well, if it was an issue for that patient, they will tell me. But I think it's really important that the practitioner be the one to take the initiative if they feel like it's a possibility that there is a history of sexual violence there to ask the patient about it. It shouldn't be on the patient, I don't
2: think. And I'm struck by something Sophia said, and that was 30 years ago, there's no point in telling your health practitioner because you knew there was nothing they could do. I wonder how many people still think that these days, even though there are things that we can do.
0: It's Mm. important, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) Definitely. I think that we all have our own level of confidence when it comes to providing care for someone when it comes to sexual violence. Take a moment to consider this for yourself. Is asking someone about sexual violence something that you feel confident in doing? We ask Laura for her advice about how we go about asking.
1: Definitely ask alone, that would be really the only thing I would I would call a rule. <laughs> but I think um Really, the most important thing is whatever you choose to say and whatever words you decide to use, that it's something that comes naturally and comfortably to you because I think the key thing is to make the patient feel that you are okay with this topic. This is not a topic that upsets you or makes you uncomfortable, that it's a completely normal thing to talk about and that whatever they say to you, you're going to be okay to to hold that and to hear that. So this wording that I suggest um, is you can say something like um, sometimes things that have happened in the past can affect how you feel now. For example, I often see patients who have had an unwanted sexual experience in the past and who feel stressed or anxious or down now. It's really common to feel this way. Do you think that might be the case for you? Um, and I've deliberately used the word unwanted sexual experience as opposed to sexual assault just because sometimes people find that language very confronting and they don't uh, label the experiences that they've had, particularly if it was one of those sort of more subtle type of things. They don't believe that it is a sexual assault uh, and would just say no if you ask them that.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Carol, have you got any other ways of asking?
3: Yeah look and I think um, you know through my research uh, wasn't I didn't have much training in this from my clinical practice and it was only through my research and understanding the prevalence of sexual violence and intimate partner violence that I started asking more and of course people started reporting more so I think that's really key to remember that this is you know using this information in your practice and getting comfortable with it as Laura said and I guess my um, key would be to take away that you know just asking if they've ever felt unsafe or you know keeping that door open so that people know that they might not want to disclose there and then but that down the track if they want to talk about it or if it if it occurs during therapy that there's space and that you're always there to open open to talk about it and you'll be there to comfort them and um, provide strategies along the way.
0: Mm. Carol, what are your thoughts about asking clients about a history of sexual violence on an intake form?
3: Yeah, well, I guess we know from the literature that universal screening isn't indicated. It's not really recommended, um, but that it is just that awareness of having of those red flags. So and we know that people are probably not likely to, you know, from those prevalence stats, we know that people that it's underreported. So my impression was that people might not answer truthfully with the questionnaire and I think it is really about building that rapport and that's what provides that safe space for people to actually open up to talk about it I think it's I always write it on my notes to remind myself at the top of my piece of paper to say ask about trauma ask about violence history you know just as a note to myself but I think it's really about having that space and the client okay. feeling comfortable and it might not be in the first session you mm-hmm. know you'll know that through that that kind of therapeutic rapport that you build with someone. And that would be. Sorry, Laura. Go.
1: I was just saying. I 100% agree with that, Carol. I think mm. Carol said it really well, and I agree that it's probably not useful to ask every single person that comes through the door uh, or put it on the intake form. I think it is really about looking for those um, red flag presentations and having always in the back of your mind that um, when you're exploring possible underlying reasons for someone's mental health symptoms, that you're considering sexual violence as one of those possibilities. I think that's going to be more useful than than having it on the form
4: personally. And, and it's a very personal experience. You know, it's a very personal experience for a victim. Do you know? It's not something they'd want to broadcast. By ticking a
2: box on the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. got no empathy in it. That box mm-hmm. has it.
0: Laura shared with us a mnemonic LIVES, that's L-I-V-E-S, which is a guide to providing care once the person has disclosed a history of sexual violence.
1: So this mnemonic, uh, LIVES, very easy to remember. Um, it's a wonderful mnemonic um, from the World Health Organisation and it is really more about intimate partner violence, but I think many of the principles are equally applicable for sexual sexual violence outside of the partner context. Um, so and this really reminds us to listen, listen to the person closely and be non-judgmental, inquire about their needs. So rather than, you know, telling them what they should do, asking them what it is that they want to work on and what they would like help with, validating their experiences, you know, always believing them and um, assuring them that it's not their fault enhancing safety if that's appropriate um, particularly if the perpetrator is an intimate partner that you may need to discuss some safety issues with them and providing uh, ongoing support whether that is referrals to special services or um, just letting them know that they can book follow-up consultations to just come back and talk to you if they need so just not making them feel like it's like all right we've talked about that see you later that you you provide that kind of open the door for an an ongoing conversation if they need it. So what does the literature
2: say to us about how we should respond in this situation?
1: There was a systematic review done a few years ago um, that looked at uh, a lot of the studies with survivors and synthesized those things that they wanted from um, healthcare practitioners and those things were uh in the main providing tangible aid uh and this is something that comes out in the intimate partner violence literature as well that sometimes people want more than just a chance to talk about it they actually want practical support with whatever it is they need um it could be um you know a a warm referral to somewhere else it might be um, providing them a prescription for medication if they need something to you know stabilize their mood before they can work on the trauma it might be um, you know some other kind of support referral to uh, medical care if they've had an unwanted pregnancy whatever it is something tangible and practical they want to have their disclosures validated Um, as we've mentioned. So, you know, not saying like, are you sure that really happened? Or, you know, you didn't misunderstand it, none of that validating and providing emotional support. Uh, And I think sometimes um, practitioners feel like, you know, because they can't fix the problem that they're not doing enough, but actually sometimes all that people want is someone to, to feel like someone cares about the problem. Somebody sees them, Understands the problem and uh, you know cares about what happens to them. Quite simple things. So,
2: apart from all those things, what else can we do?
1: Yes, there's a limited evidence for specific kind of therapies or treatments or interventions for sexual violence survivors. Um, there just hasn't been a lot of research done, and what has been done has been sometimes done poorly, or they just don't have really clear outcomes of what works. Um, which is, you know, obviously a problem um, for trying to get a good evidence base for best practice. But what we do know is that there's some evidence for trauma-informed CBT as being effective, particularly for people who have post-traumatic stress as a result of sexual violence. And also uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing has some evidence to support its effectiveness. But those things are not gonna be for everyone. Some people don't want to like revisit their trauma as part of those therapies, or they don't even want to talk about it at all. So we're looking at, you know, whether things like yoga and other sort of mind-body therapies um, can be useful, because we know they have quite good effectiveness for PTSD, but we just need to do more research specifically with sexual violence survivors. But some pe- for some people, those kind of therapies might be really helpful. Um, but I think it, whatever you do, it has to be trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive.
4: Well, would you like me to tell you how I recovered? Absolutely. We'd love to hear that (laughs) because you're looking very healthy there at the moment. So tell us all about it. Yeah, I am pretty healthy. Okay, so um, I'll just preface this with my husband also controlled my social life. So it wasn't until I went back to teaching after my second child that I was able to make friends among among the staff um, and slowly I began to disclose something of my situation with them. Um, And this was the first time in 19 years that I was able to start to share my experience. Um, So that was really good for me to be able to do that. But I was also in a position of responsibility at the school. I was responsible for staff development and I would receive information about possible training for staff. So among these things, I came across a personal development organization called Personality and Human Relationships, and they were offering a five-day reflective workshop called Who Am I? Well, my sense of self had taken a battering because of the years of abuse by my husband. So I was determined to do this and to find the answer to this question. So during this workshop, I reconnected with my self-worth, which was pretty amazing, and was able to make a decision to leave at long last, which I was able to achieve four months later. And with the help of my friends from school as well, they were wonderful. Um, So I continued to receive um, support within the same organisation, but in the form of group work. Um, I wasn't really ready for individual counselling until much later. Um, And then I also, at the same time, I became involved in Buddhist meditation because I had ongoing anxiety and that was extremely helpful. I attended retreats, meditation retreats, which were really great. Um, Anyway, after a few years, I entered into a new relationship and I was able to rediscover my sexuality with a warm and loving partner, which was really great. Um, But then, but now... I'm, st- I'm single now. I've decided to leave that relationship. So I'm single, independent, and I have a great support system that help me to continue to grow.
2: It sounds as though you got very well. And I'm very pleased that you have had that relationship and that you've grown so much um, in thanks, recent thanks. years. Yeah. Thanks, Jan. Yeah. Yeah. Carol, can you tell us something about how we as practitioners can ensure that our services are trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive?
3: Yeah, I think it's really important to um, think about what we've talked about today and the principles of trauma-informed care, which are around you know, understanding that individuals, generally women, are more likely to experience trauma and violence and that there's also those kind of structural barriers and inequalities that we as women experience in our lives. So just always having that in, in your mind to think about those clients that you see, your patients that you see and how that might impact on their, their current presentations. And then I think in your practice, it's about how we... And I think Colleen's question is really useful to kind of think about that, you know, that it is, you know, we're trying to be informed about these violence experiences, but how do we do that in a sensitive way? And really thinking about, you know, your practices in your clinic and the policies and guidelines that are in place and around cervical screening that we've touched on today, Um, you know, and even in your reception area, thinking about is that trauma informed? Is it, are we asking people sensitive questions in a loud, you know, cavernous space or are we speaking to them quietly? or giving them a questionnaire or, you know, I think it's really thinking about thinking those broader aspects of your practice, your individual practice, but also within the the clinic that you Mm -hmm. operate in. Mm -hmm.
2: Just thinking a lot about whether certain practices that you have are likely to trigger somebody who's got this kind of background. Let's go back to Jess. We know now that Jess has a history of sexual violence because she's told us. She's been triggered recently by all that coverage around sexual violence in the media that we've been seeing. And there's certainly been a lot of it. Is this sort of your experience clinically, Carol, that people are triggered by the media coverage?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Definitely in the last couple of years, something that I've seen a lot of. And mm-hmm. you know, it really makes sense, doesn't it, if you're hearing those stories or seeing them on the newspaper or, you know, it's coming up on your phone when you're on a tram and being triggered in that environment and feeling really unsafe. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I think
3: everybody in this room who's working clinically would say
2: yes to that. Jess has never sought any formal support around this. She's worried about the cervical screening test, as you have noted, and she's not showing any signs or reporting any thoughts about self-harm or suicidal ideation. So what
1: could we offer Jess? Obviously it would be led by Jess and what her particular needs are. For some people, medication would not be what they would want to do, and that's fine. Um, But for others, it may just help them get to a better place where they're more able to effectively work on the trauma through other therapies. Um, but absolutely, giving her time and and validating and um, responding empathetically. And I think, um, you know, there seems to be lots of people, yourself included, who are concerned about upsetting the patient. And I mean, that's not a bad thing. That 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 is coming from a place of caring. But I think. My view is it is that, and even as a researcher, you know, I face this issue in talking to people about the most horrible parts of their lives and trying to do that in a way that is sensitive. And, you know, often, really often people cry telling me their stories and I don't necessarily think that is a problem. It's a sensitive topic. It's a hard topic. It's a horrible thing that's happened to them it's understandable that they might cry Um, and the fact that they choose to share that story with you is their choice and I'm sure they're, um, you know, they've considered that it might make them cry and they're telling you anyway. Mm. Um, So I just think it's worse not to ask.
4: I think, I, I think that's therapeutic too. I think it lasts. It's like a release it, and someone is listening to me. I think mm. it's very good. Mm. Mm.
2: A little bit like people say when they can finally admit that they've got suicidal thoughts. Exactly. It's a relief to have mm. told told somebody about it and yeah. thank goodness somebody has finally asked them about it.
1: That's right. th- I think it's just critical to differentiate between re-traumatising and upsetting It's possible they will get upset talking about it, uh, but that's not the same as re-traumatising. And I think the only way you re-traumatise them is by not validating and not being empathetic and not listening to them and hearing what they want. So I think, um, you know, that and those are things that you can easily avoid doing by having, you know, practising your clinical skills and and thinking about um, how they're feeling and what you can do.
2: I think that's a really important distinction to make, Laura.
0: Laura told us about MySafety, a website that her team at the University of Melbourne has developed for the students there. It can be accessed by anyone, but would be particularly useful for a young person who has or knows someone who's had an experience of sexual violence or is worried about something that's happened. There's information about sexual violence, consent, disclosure and strategies for different actions that you can take. It's publicly available and the URL is www.mysafety.org. So go and take a look.
2: So My Safety is available to all of us now. Beyond Silence is coming. Tell us about that, Laura.
1: Beyond Silence is coming this year, um, and that will be a website specifically for women who've experienced intimate partner sexual violence, and uh, a main focus of it will be raising awareness. So I know from my interviews that I did that so many women have these things happen and they don't label them as sexual violence, they don't think of them as sexual violence, they think of them as like just bad relationship stuff that happened and trying to, for those people who might be in that questioning stage, to have somewhere to go and, you know, look at other survivor stories and read information and figure out if that's what's going on for them and how they can get support.
0: Laura also shared the website au which has videos of survivors telling their stories of sexual violence and recovery. This can be useful for us as clinicians just to hear from the perspective of someone with lived experience, and we can also share these videos with our patients. The next question, of course, is about looking after
2: yourself. I just want to briefly run through some of the resources that you can find online to help you as a practitioner look after yourself. The Hand in Hand Network is a peer support network that was established at the beginning of last year. If you are a health professional of any kind in Australia or New Zealand, you can link up with the Hand in Hand network and either get help from your peers or provide help to your peers. Have a look at the website. I find it as therapeutic providing help as I think I would if I was one of the people who'd asked for help in the peer support group that I run. The MPRAC project runs a community of practice, we at Black Dog do, that provides an online community for you to talk to your peers about all things mental health, about what your favourite movies are, and about case studies that we put up once a fortnight. Have a look at the community of practice because you might find it's a useful thing for you you to help um, support you in your work and in your personal life for that matter. And last but not least is the Essential Network, 10, the Essential Network, which is a website and app that the Black Dog Institute have been commissioned by the federal government to provide, which provides um, links for all health professionals to information resources, online assessments, Um and professional and peer support and online treatment programs. So it's free of charge and um, have a look at it to see if there's anything on there that is useful to you. Just a couple more more points, and that is you can find all sorts of online resources through the portals that have been established in recent years. Um, Head to Health, which is a general community-facing portal, which which holds, is a repository basically of all the evidence-based online mental health resources. Mum Space, which is a portal to all the online resources for the perinatal period, which may be of relevance here, and WellMob, which is a portal to all the culturally appropriate resources for Indigenous Australians, um, something that's really worth having a look at because those resources are quite different from the kinds of resources that you might use for non-Indigenous Australians. I just want to say you can learn more about using online resources on the Black Dog Institute's MPRAC page. And if you'd like to go there, amongst other things, there are some modules that you can do to familiarise yourself with online resources and the way of using them
0: i really hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and learning more about promoting healing and recovery after sexual violence in the webinar laura highlighted a few key resources that are available by going on to our website at the black dog institute under the e-mental health page i'd like to take this opportunity to really thank dr jan orman Jan's been developing and facilitating this webinar series from the very beginning up until now and we're now at webinar 48 she's continuing to work with the Black Dog Institute but this will be her last webinar so I just want to thank her for all of her hard work the wisdom that she's shared with us over the years and the contribution that she's made to improving the mental health knowledge and skills of health professionals from all around Australia thanks so much for listening today until next time